Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Thriving Minds podcast. I'm Professor Selena Bartlett, and today we're joined by Judy Cornish, and I think you're going to really enjoy this podcast. She's the author and founder of Dementia and Alzheimer's Wellbeing Network. She's the creator of the Dawn Method of Dementia Care and a retired elder care lawyer attorney. And I think this is the interesting thing that she's going to describe in a minute. And she's written two books, one called The Dementia Handbook, which is available on Amazon. And the other one is Dementia with Dignity, which takes a person-centered dementia care from theory to practice by identifying the skills not lost to dementia. And through this method, she provides online training programs for families and professional caregivers. And the reason that uh, she's on the podcast today, too, is because um, what she described in her book, her method, her TED Talk, and everything as a neuroscientist really resonated with me with what I understood about how the brain works in terms of what happens when it doesn't work so well anymore as we get older. And um, we're going to talk a little bit about that today. So thank you for joining us today, Judy. And she's coming to us all the way from Idaho. And they've got some bushfires yes. at the moment. Yeah, we do. Thank you so much for inviting me, Selena. Um, yeah, so, um, you know, I, I think to me, this is the, because um, yeah, I came to dementia care not um, as a medical professional or uh, a scientist, I'm a lawyer. Uh, by training um and uh the i i had actually back in 2010 i had thought i was going to semi-retire in a lovely little town close to the mountains in idaho moscow idaho and um, as i was getting to know the lawyers in the town and and starting to get established and i think i'd done maybe one will for one family um, the lady across the street, I got to know a neighbor and she told me, she said, you know, I was diagnosed with Alzheimer's about 10 years ago. I can't remember when exactly, but the thing I'm best at is forgetting. So I'll forget your name. So don't worry about that. Just tell me every time. And boy, you talk about, uh, creativity and intelligence and tenacity and courage and just a beautiful way to approach life. And as I spent time with her, uh, just as a neighbor, um, within a week or two, I, I think her daughter came to visit and said, just in passing, she came over, introduced herself and said, I know you've been getting to know my mom. Well, she's getting really forgetful. So we're going to put her in a care facility. And I said, you know, don't, don't do that. I, I buy groceries. She loses the car when she goes to buy groceries. Not a problem. We can go together. She likes to go swimming in the morning. Well, you know, I'm an early riser. I'll, I'll take her swimming and I can do my email. I could read a book. And so um, I think, and it's it, small town, of course. It only took a couple of weeks. My phone would ring and the person would say, you know, so-and-so gave me your phone number. I hear you're looking after her mom. Could you check in on my father? And because it was a small town, yet you know, it was about two months later, I realized that I was I was looking in on about maybe half a dozen elders, seniors, people who were living at home in their own homes, and beginning to navigate daily life losing cognitive skills. And I realized I'd probably started a business, but I had become intrigued absolutely intrigued with what I saw going on for them cognitively and emotionally because boy it, what they were going through did not look like anything I'd heard about in relation to dementia or Alzheimer's. So maybe um, and first of all thank you for doing that that makes my heart sing. You it made know, my heart you, sing. Yeah, well this is the thing is you don't realize that but uh I think, imagine, I mean, it does take a village to raise a child, but also to help our yes. elders live in, in yes. dignity. Um, but first of all, let's just uh, talk about the moment when you realize that what you thought should be the case for these people and what they're going through to what you actually saw, what was the divide there? And I know this is where you bring your lawyer's brain to it, even though you think you're not a lawyer. 
Um, we'll talk about that in a minute. But what was the, the reluctant lawyer? The reluctant lawyer. Do you want to discuss a little bit what you, what was the dichotomy? Yeah, you know, living here in the U.S., um, I'd had one brief look at a care facility for people who'd been diagnosed with Alzheimer's, and um, 1999, Oregon, people were being uh, strapped into their beds, into wheelchairs, injected with psychotropic drugs. I, I heard no end of screaming in terror and in anger and in pain. And so um, after law school, uh, well, when I went to law school, I, I took disability law, elder law, wills and trusts, family law, family dispute resolution, mediation, anything I could think of that might equip me to do something um, that would change the way people were treated in these corporate care facilities. And, and I couldn't find any way to do it as an attorney. But when I came to start just spending time with people, I, I couldn't understand how we arrived at treating people that way. Um, you know, we, we, we associate the word dementia with, with somebody going crazy. And yet everything I saw my, my neighbors, you know, my clients, my elders, everything I saw them doing to me, it was, um, I was seeing people having emotional responses to finding themselves unable to do something that they'd always been able to do. So do you want to explain and what you mean by an emotional response to the audience? A stress a, response. Yes. I'm, you know, to me, I was seeing fight, flight, freeze, on and and I didn't see disease you know and I I at that time I don't know that I had even heard of dementia related behaviors but but I knew that in looking at my neighbors and spending time with them nobody was showing me disease and and actually they were experiencing something that I couldn't quite put my finger on but I knew I'd gone through it earlier in life yeah, let's talk about that so the audience yeah. gets an understanding of where you're coming from well, the, you know, my, my goal in life was to be an English professor and to teach German and English literature and writing. Um, as a child, I was supposed to be an artist and um, I, I did classical, I played classical piano all the way to instructor level. I, all of my, when I went to university, um, I thought I would be, get a business degree and the business dean suggested I would be more appropriate in the English department where you know, I quickly found my place in, with literature and writing. So all of my background, my undergraduate work was truly making, uh, developing my intuitive thinking skills. And of course, we have two sets of thinking skills, uh, you know, in terms of um, the ancient Greeks, we're talking about intuitive thinking and rational thinking, or Ian McGilchrist, we're talking intuitive thinking, rational thinking. Do you mind Daniel if I Hanneman. interrupt you for one second? Can you just describe for people that may not have a sense of intuitive thinking as some examples, maybe? Sure, yeah. Um, well, but so our intuitive thinking is our primary set of thinking skills. And that would be um, our inductive thinking. This is um, everything that is just coming in and it's unfiltered. It's the whole picture, the big picture. Uh, my rational thinking skills are more of tools, and those tools are deductive. So it's not the whole picture; it's a small part, and it's like putting in the full stop, allowed. like yeah. having the full yeah. stop and the so, comma in the right place. Right, right. So, like for instance, when you walk into your friend's home, and she has just spent, let's say, she just purchased a brand new painting and spent a whole lot of money on it. You've heard about it. You've just arrived here to see her new painting. It's hanging on the wall. You walk in, you take a look, you look at it. And the moment you see it, you know, you love it or you hate it. That's your intuitive thinking, giving you an immediate response, unfiltered. But then your friend might say, uh, what do you think? Do you like it? Now you have to use your rational thinking and you need to analyze and explain what you do like about it. Or if you're 
really close friends, you might say, no, I don't like it at all. And then you can begin discussing and the two of you could have a discussion. And this will be your rational thinking skills, um, organizing, comparing, contrasting. And, and so, so me going back to how I got involved with dementia care, here I am spending time with my elders, just really enjoying getting to be with people who are so, so wise. And I'm not seeing anybody do anything crazy. I'm seeing a whole lot of stress reactions, fight or flight, freeze, fawn. But mostly I'm seeing people who are, are very creatively thinking outside the box to figure out how to get through the day and how to do these things, even though they're losing very specific skills. And I knew that was an experience I'd been through. So for me to go from my background of art, music, literature, uh, to suddenly land in law school on very short notice, I discovered myself in law school with no skills that I was comfortable using. And that was because my education up to that point had put very little focus on rational thinking skills. And nobody cared about my opinion or my judgment or my thought about a situation Law school teaches you, you take the facts, you're going to isolate and identify the facts, and then you isolate and identify the law, you apply the law to the facts, and you get a result. And that's all that matters. And, and I think I, I said in, in Dementia with Dignity, for me as an artist, for me as a musician, as a, a lover of history and, and literature and language, I felt like I had lost my paint box and I'd been given a stubby pencil and no eraser. It was clunky. It was no fun at all to be limited to these rational thinking skills. It was like a black and white world. I wanted to go back to the world of beauty. On the other hand, that was my experience going to law school and my elders, my neighbors, when I started spending time with people who were losing rational thinking skills and losing memory skills. And I was seeing changes in attention skills as well. I was seeing them beginning to live in the intuitive world and rediscovering all the beauty and all the inclusiveness and the, the grandeur of what's available to us when we use these intuitive thinking skills. And, and that's, you know, to me, that was, um, it was real, it, it was just a, the aha moment of my life. The one term that I really loved that you wrote about is called mindlessness. Yeah, <laughs> that's rather than mindfulness. Uh, uh, let's talk about that. That's such a cool idea. You know, yeah, I, and see, um, I've always been a reader, so uh, I've been told I, I cite too many books when I'm when I'm talking to people in interviews. But boy, if you can get a hold of Ellen Langer's book, the little book called Mindfulness, and I think she wrote it in it's published like 1987. Um, she's, she's known as the mother of mindfulness. She was the first woman hired at Harvard as a professor in the psychology department back, I think in the early eighties, um, you have to double check that for me, but she writes about the tools of mindlessness. And, and I know we have so much hype about mindfulness right now, but I think when you boil it down to be mindful is to use your attention skills and choose to put your focus, your intensity, your attention in someplace in the present. Now, I could also use my, 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 my attention skills to choose to put myself firmly in some place in the past, you know, someplace and relive that past moment. But most of the time we think about mindfulness as being able to take all of my attention and focus on the here and now, here in the present. What do I see, hear, taste, touch, or smell? What is brought to me by my intuitive thinking skills, by my senses, inductively, no filtering, thoroughly enjoy it. That's to be mindful. So with dementia, if I'm losing the ability to direct my attention or maintain my attention or recapture, redirect my attention when something grabs it, I'm still living in the present. I'm living in the present because I'm losing my memory skills. So I'm losing contact with the past. I'm losing my knowledge of the past. Uh, Daniel Kahneman calls that the remembering self. But my experiential self is fully 
able to receive all of the sensory data being given to me in the present. So I am actually, if I'm experiencing dementia, I'm achieving what everybody meditates and tries to do by being Without trying. <laughs> isn't that isn't that amazing? I mean, I just and and this is how I felt with my clients. Yeah, I felt because um, for you know for the first five years, I I I was fascinated. I, I wanted um, to see what was going on. So the interestingly about mindfulness, I don't know if you've read the literature recently, but there's a lot of people. We we actually think of mindfulness as a cognitive skill. It's not something where the brain's not working. It's actually working quite intently. Right. And so now that they've, you know, I think the effort to put mindfulness into schools and young kids is not a good one because of this reason where they're not getting a break, where they're just playing in the trees. And I, I completely agree. And, yeah. uh, so I don't know if you're aware of Willoughby Britain's work and some others, but they've shown that mindfulness for too, if you do too much of it can actually end up causing serious side effects for people. So there's a lot of people in recovery from too much mindfulness. I don't know if you've heard yeah. about this. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And and I teach that actually, too, just that, you know, context is everything. And, and it is good to be mindful. But if you had to be mindful from the moment you wake up in the morning, by the time you hit breakfast, you have exhausted your brain. And, and you're right, you are doing damage, um, especially children, we've got to just daydream, we have Let them got free. to play. <laughs> let it go let it be free but, there's a, yeah there's know. another um, big study that just came out in the middle of america showing that because um, you know, had this this race to younger preschool education and yeah. they did this huge study in lower socioeconomic um, parts of the state um, and published it and the woman publishing it was expecting that they'd get good results in year three grade three and grade six on math and english but they got the opposite where they actually made their results worse by giving them very structured earlier education. I don't know if you're aware yeah. of that work too. So it's, a, it, I mean, that's even more so than like a mindfulness practice, isn't it? For a young brain. It, it is. It's, it, it, to me, it's just, it's like putting a straight jacket on a child. We, we need to just play. Um, but, you know, mindlessness on the other hand, mindlessness is not bad. Just like mindfulness is not entirely good. You know, everything has a good use, a good context. But if I'm losing my ability to use rational thinking or memory skills, then I can rely on the tools of mindlessness to function at a higher level. And that would be automatic thinking scripts and muscle memory. And that was one of the things that I saw um, that just fascinated me with my, with my neighbors, with my clients, that... You know, as long as, like, I remember the first client, I thought I was being really helpful. The man loved his cup of tea and he would put two black tea bags, you know, your basic, whatever, um, you know, the, what is that they drink in America? I can never think, but uh, what it is, but Lipton, you know, and, and he'd put two tea bags in a mug and then he'd fill it with water from the tap and he'd put it in the microwave. Me coming from Canada, I thought that was barbaric, but he loved it. And he would have sugar, and it was two scoops of sugar, pure sugar, cane sugar going into this cup, and then he would drink it. But but that was his self-care. Whenever he found himself completely at sea, he was trying to do something or trying to recall something, or he was in his home, and he couldn't think of what it was he was supposed to be doing, or he felt uneasy. You know, that general unease of not being able to use rational thinking to anticipate the next uh, event or how to solve the current problem. He would just drop everything, go to the kitchen and make a cup of tea until the day he forgot one of the steps. And so I thought, okay, I can help. I will definitely help here. I'll rearrange the kitchen. And so I, I got rid of all the extra cups and glasses and, and put the mugs he preferred and I put them on the counter and I put the tea bags in the box next to the mugs on the counter and rearranged things so that everything he needed for his cup of tea was handy. Oh, and I switched them from sugar bowl to sugar cubes because that was that make more sense too. He didn't need a spoon. The next day when I came, he was wringing his hands and walking around in the living room, just completely lost. And, and he kept saying, I don't know, I just don't know, I don't know, I don't know what happened. 
something strange, something strange has happened. And, and I said, well, let's go get a cup of tea. And we went into the kitchen and he was really distraught in the kitchen. And, and it, you know, it, it took me until I, I realized I broke his habit. I changed what was familiar and he doesn't have the, the tools, the cognitive tools to relearn something new, a new pattern. I shouldn't have done it. And so I put everything back as best I could. And that didn't fix it. He was never again able to make a cup of tea because I had broken his memory, his muscle memory and his automatic thinking scripts regarding tea. So from that point on, for him to have tea, he needed a companion who would help. And so, you know, I took over. Um, eventually, my staff took over making tea for him. But these these skills, you know, that what we're talking about now is, is Ellen Langer and mindfulness and mindlessness. But we have everything as context. And it, it is it so, is incredibly valuable. Right, so if, from a neuroscience perspective, because it'd be nice, I think it'd be nice to interweave these two. You talk about the stress reaction. I talk about that in my book all the time. Uh, and this is in a reasonably rational, healthy brain. And I'm trying to help people use that part of their brain to actually mitigate the effect of these stress reactions because we're yeah. able to use our rational thinking skills to do that. And what right. you're talking yeah. about, what happens when that goes away and what you're demonstrating to me is exactly how the brain was formed over millions of years of history and this hardwired. So let's talk about why was that stressful to him not being able to have in his environment everything that he was used to having, which then made him feel calm is because what you're saying is context matters. Well, it's actually how the environment is in, has kind of built in the memory networks of all our synaptic connections to help right. us be able to achieve a task. Yes. Yeah. And because and it's so yeah. old and that's hardwired in, he probably repeated that the most number of times out of everything. Right. And that's what you mean right. by muscle memory. Yes. Yeah. And then, and then automatic thinking script that, to me, that's more like emptying the dishwasher. You've, you've done it. It's the same dishwasher. You've done it in the same home. You've been doing it for 10 years with this particular dishwasher and all the plates and cups and glasses and cutlery goes in the same place. And you can do that on auto, autopilot. You get up in the morning and you go to get dressed. You don't have to think about which drawer the socks are in. You're yeah. on, and or you wake up in the middle of the night, you need to go to the bathroom. It's muscle memory that'll take you there, and you can get back into bed. You're still base, you know, you might still be able to be half asleep. And there's a very strong uh, neural network that goes between where the stress is processed to, to the stride, and which is where these automatic motor scripts are written. And so, oh. so there's two parts of the brain that this happens in. So, one, when we're learning something brand new for the first time think of how many trials it takes even when you're young to learn yeah. something before it becomes that automatic skill well right. so it shifts to a new circuit once it once it becomes automatized so that's so what you're seeing there is stress actually or the environment pulls out that automatic part of the brain and that part of the brain is still pretty old in terms of circuitry so it's harder to have that disrupted. So it's below the neocortex. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, so why people, and then you talked a lot on your TED talk about um, a loved one trying to help their parents. Uh, they're going to a, a meeting, uh, to a doctor's appointment, and the yeah. husband says to the wife, put on your shoes and socks or the other way around. And yep. they go out to the back to get ready to go to this appointment, come back and the shoes and socks haven't been put on yet because they forgot because you, he gave them too many, there was too many instructions in a row. Yeah. You know, so this yes. is, this is stress. So the thing that I noticed too, and this is where we can really help people listening that are going through this with their parents, or it's not just older people with dementia. There's a whole lot of different things, people with mental health issues. My sister had the same experience yeah. that you noticed, uh, in Oregon, my sister went through that in Brisbane, but with a mental illness rather than with dementia. Mm -hmm. And I think the brain is being built to pick up 
people's facial recognition as the first thing. So Mark Williams talks about that. He's a cognitive neuroscientist. Our brain has been built for social interaction. So if you look at someone strangely or you react strangely, they can pick that up because they don't have the rational process is what you were talking about. That part of the brain's not there to regulate this perceptual part of the brain. Yeah, that to me, and, and you know, when I'm, every everything I do is to make, I suppose I'm, I'm taking these cognitive functions and trying to put it into everyday language. What you're doing is to how to take this information and to put it into practical terms that um, people can understand, both the carers and then also yeah. the techniques that people can use to try and make the people suffering's life better and for both right. the carer and the person suffering so that we can rethink and change the way we think about um, dementia and how to take care of right. it and maybe yeah, make people that understanding could actually improve people's outcomes too. You know, um, Alan Power in his book, uh, Dementia Beyond Drugs, he comments, and it's just a footnote, but he comments that the Inuit believe or see dementia as a gift. And I've never been able to find anything more on it. Um, but I think it's a gift. I think it's in, an incredible gift. And, and looking at our societies from the perspective of which cognitive skills we value and which ones we ignore. You know, here in the US, if you're talking about intuitive thinking skills, people normally correct me and go back to intuition. And, and generally someone puts a hand up and says, well, wait a minute, if you're talking, you're saying intuitive thinking skills, but really that's just intuition, right? It's just emotions. And, and I think that is so limiting and that is so, um, uh, such a loss to us as a culture. So it is true that our rational thinking skills and our memory skills make it possible for us to be more productive. So if you're in a capitalist society where production and what a person can do is how we measure a person's worth, then what we're really doing is prioritizing rational thinking skills and memory skills over the other cognitive skills. So this is, I think, where we, we started to start to see um, children being pushed to be productive in their childhood years go to school early, do get better grades early, learn to, to read or a math earlier. And I, I think that's so unkind because the, you know, the greater gift is being able to use your intuitive thinking skills, which are your inductive, just receiving of information from the senses. You know, and we, we know there's more than five senses, but, but your intuitive thinking skills, to me, that is what enables you to experience the present. And so if I want to be mindful, I think my main purpose in being mindful is to enjoy the present. And the reason for that would be, and this is what my friends who are experiencing dementia are so good at. If I'm experiencing dementia and I've lost my memory skills, my ability to access information from the past, once that goes away, there's no interruption, there's no uh, distraction from the past. Now, eventually, or sometimes first, my friends with dementia will lose their rational thinking skills. If I lose those, I've lost some really valuable tools, but I've also lost all of the interruptions that and all the distraction that comes from the future. So I've lost the ability to initiate activity, which often makes me look like I'm depressed when I'm not. I just need someone to initiate making the cup of tea. You know, um, let's go for a walk. Let's go to the garden. Let's let's do something fun. Um, but I also lose the ability to plan, to compare, contrast. All of that goes away, and I end up living 100% in the present, experientially. And this is where Daniel Kahneman talks about the remembering self, the experiential self. And that's, that's part of the core of what I teach with the Dawn Method. But take away the distractions of memory skills and rational thinking skills. Here I am, fully experiential in the present. What's here in the present with me? Well, companionship. You don't, there's no companionship in the past or the future. It exists here in the present. And beauty. 
everything that is possibly beautiful to me, and of course that's ever so personal, be it music, you know, one type of music might bring tears to my eyes of joy and it might bring tears of pain to yours. It's very personal, color, um, nature, thing, the smells, all of that is beauty and all of that is available here in the present. So when the Inuit talk about the gift, I think it truly is and that if we who have our memory skills and our rational thinking skills and we can manipulate our attention and turn it and push it and pull it wherever we wish to take it, well, then we're the companions. But our friend, our companion, our loved one, our client who's experiencing dementia, they are inviting us to turn it all off and come live in the present, enjoy beauty and companionship. So. One thing I, I always tell people that because I've you know, had friends ha- having to handle this for their parents and stuff is yeah. it's like holding their hand and squeezing them. They will still feel like this is towards the end of time when things are really broken yeah. down, but they will still feel those hugs. They'll still recognize oh. the smell. They'll still hear yeah. everything. So they're there, as you said. That's why I loved reading your work because it, it describes my thinking about it, but you actually put it into words. So I think people listening, the hardest thing you can do is walk away because you think they don't, they're not there. And that's really not true. Not true. Not true. You know, the that first, my first neighbor, the one who lived across the street, um, we'll call her Mary, but eventually um, she's gone now, but eventually she was living, she had to live in an adult family home. And I would go to visit. And I remember arriving uh, one day and there was a new staff member and she said, oh, who are you here to see? And I said, well, I'm here to see Mary. And she said, oh, you're wasting your time. She doesn't, she can't eat, she can't talk. She just lays in bed. She can't even open her eyes. Total waste of time. Why don't you talk to somebody else? And I said, no, no, I'm here. She's my friend. I'm here to see Mary. Well, that's ridiculous. I guess you can if you want to. And I went in and here she is in bed and she's curled up in the fetal position, head on a pillow and covers pulled up. So I got a chair and I pulled my chair up so that if she opened her eyes, she'd be able to see me. Now, I'm not going to reach out and touch her because to me, that would be as an attorney, that would be uninvited touch would be an assault. And I know she doesn't know who I am. She doesn't know who anybody is. It's been, I think she probably had dementia, Alzheimer's at that time for more than 15 years. But I sat down on the chair where she could see me and I started to talk. And I said, hey, Mary, hey, it's Judy. It's your good friend, Judy. You and me, we love each other. And oh my goodness, we've had fun times. Let me tell you how we met. And I just start telling her and I'll start crying now because she's gone. But, you know, at first, one eye opened and it was like she couldn't believe what she was seeing and she opened her eye and she looked and she closed it again really fast pretty soon both eyes are open she's looking at me like she can't believe what's going on and i just sat there i stayed about half an hour and all i did was tell her every story she ever told me because if your loved one is experiencing dementia, they are going to tell you stories over and over and over again. They're going to have favorite words and favorite phrases. And if they tell you something over and over again, it's because it's important. It defines who they are. It means something. You might never figure it out, but that's okay because it means something to that person. And so I sat and I told her, first I told her how we met our fun times as friends things we did together that were so much fun. We'd go swimming in the morning. We'd go, you know, it was always the, let's let's find the best hot chocolate on the Palouse. You know, that was something we did every day. And every day when we did it, we'd sit down and we'd, we'd say, well, let's go to this coffee shop. Let's drive to this little town. And every day she'd say, oh, Judy, why don't you ever take me for chocolate? You know, I love hot chocolate. And every time I'd say, oh, I should bring you every day. Let's do it tomorrow. And every day she'd have forgotten, but I told her her memories about us. And then when I had told as many of our memories as I could think of, I told her her memories, the ones she told me over and over again. And if you do this, that person is not lost to you, but they're not lost to them. 
because, you know, I don't know, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a scientist or a, a medical professional, but I know this. Each of us, when we reach the end of life, we need to know. We need to know who loved us, who we loved, and we need to know that our life was worthwhile, that we lived a good life. You don't need to tell people about the bad stuff. You tell them about the good memories. And boy, I got to tell you, when, when the more I talked, the more she came alive. And in the end, we are holding hands, both hands. She is laughing and chuckling and talking. And when I had to go, she asked for a kiss. That's somebody who had been completely um, fetal position, no, no response, not even eating or drinking. And, and, you know, to me, this is the difference. I don't know. I don't know what the right vocabulary is, but I know that um, there's a difference between being able to receive sensory information. That's my intuitive thinking skills. But to, to actually interpret it, identify it, that must be my memory skills and my rational thinking skills. But just because I can't interpret it doesn't mean I don't receive it. And, and I, I, I worry about us misdiagnosing people as a phase, you know, or we're depressed when what we've actually lost with rational thinking, I'm going to lose my ability to anticipate, to plan, to picture something that I like. Oh, I don't feel good right now. I'm going to go have a cup of tea. But I lose that ability. So I lose the ability to initiate activities. And I could still have the ability to enjoy. So I'm, I'm not actually unable to enjoy. I'm, I'm able to enjoy, but I'm just unable to bring these beautiful, joyful things and enjoyment to myself. I need my companions to do it for me. Yeah. And this is such a great story that you told because I think about this all the time. And I've visited people the same thing and to see how people are treated in these and it's no one's fault it's our society's broken down so that's what we do it with is. people now because we can't yeah. handle it and uh, this is what yeah. happens with young people that have mental illness too we put them in these places right. that are just you would never you wouldn't be able to last an hour in one of these places and so They're i think terrible. it's our rational productivity focused got to look a certain yeah. way and ignore people that don't uh, and that, and so we blocked them away. Thank you. Yeah. And yeah. so I, I agree with you. Um, that story you told is so beautiful. And she was in the fetal position because of how she's being treated, um, because right. taken out of that her home and into a facility. Like if none of us could lie where she was. No. Like no. I sat there with a woman Alzheimer's and in one of these units, and she was so distressed because she was a woman that took care of the whole community and. And being where she was in this tiny little room with really white fluorescent lights, lighting and lock up because they didn't want her oh. to, you know, and I was with her going, doing like without doing, knowing what your method, but just talking about all the great things she did and looking at all the yeah. pictures in her scrapbooks. And she was, yeah. she was totally fluid, but then right. to see what was happening around her was very distressing. Like for me personally, that yeah. we would, we, it's I don't, know. I, I don't it really understand is. how we allow that. It seems really, I, you know, we I lost know. our way, didn't I, we? We've lost our way. And, and my, uh, I, I do, I, I have a, a man I'm, I'm working with in Brazil, and he's doing a Brazilian and Portuguese translation of all of my work. Oh, fantastic. He's teaching in Brazil, and we're working with a university there in Sao Paulo. But um, he, He's, you know, with a Brazilian look at America, he said, you know, it's, it's not really capitalism, it's individualism. And it's looking at each person is an individual before they are part of a family or part of a tribe or part of a village or part of a community of any kind. And I think that's where we've gone astray. You know, this, you can't have freedom without responsibility. You can't have a healthy brain or a healthy self, if you're alone, you, we, we are social creatures, we do need to interact. And, and I loved um, what you said on one of your podcasts about how it's social interaction, 
is what really drives and brings us to life and keeps our brains alive and you know and and keeps those um, and it gives people purpose to stay alive and uh we've seen this over and over again like just empirically um and i'm sure there's lots of scientific evidence as well but empirically just interacting with people that are older you can see people that have a village and people that don't and the difference like and as i said to coming on to this podcast i was with my mum last couple of days because she had a fall and stuff and you know she's lucky she's got a family around her and some medical people and stuff but just looking at what i had to do personally to make sure she just got a sponge bath and she's in a private hospital that's really well funded in a really good situation i'm sitting there thinking the whole day oh my god imagine if she she was someone with alzheimer's with no family in one of these institutions she probably wouldn't get bathed at all you know so at all so I think yeah, I, 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 your work really resonates with me and I'm very, very grateful to meet you personally and the work you're doing is really fabulous. Um, your method is called the DAWN method. Do you want to describe that um, just briefly, um, how you came to that? Yeah, it's, um, well, it I took me quite a while because I uh, to come up with a name, I wanted something positive because I, I completely refuse to accept this this doom and gloom, negative suffering. I hate using dementia patient, but you have to, to, to appear on SEO. Uh, suffering, suffering doesn't come from dementia itself. It comes from the way we respond to people, whether it's dementia or mental illness or anything, um, anything that makes someone different. But um, to me, I, you know, the first five years, I just spent all of my time with people who are experiencing dementia at home. What's it look like before you get pulled out removed from your home and everything that you built for a lifetime what's what does life look like what does the experience look like and then from there i thought okay how can i teach this how could i break it down and it's really looking at us as human beings our stress responses if i'm losing cognitive skills i will be having stress responses how do we work with that and so the Dawn method is seven, I broke it down to seven tools, seven emotional needs, seven, and, and it, it really is just Abraham Maslow with a feedback loop is what that Dawn flower is. And the very center, the life-giving force center, the flower is mood management. And it all begins there. And if you are spending time with somebody who's experiencing dementia, they're losing, they're losing rational thinking and memory skills. So they're losing the ability to manage and shape their own moods. So we, we take it over. We, we do that for them. But the primary needs are always security. The amygdala is always screaming out. One of my friends is a child trauma psychologist. She said the amygdala screams am I safe four times a second from first breath to last? And I thought, oh my goodness, if I'm experiencing dementia and I have no memory skills and no rational thinking skills and my attention keeps getting grabbed, taken elsewhere, all of the feelings of insecurity. So that's dawn. We start by understanding how mood is managed and then we, we take over that task. And then we understand that the brain needs information from birth to death, always, just like the stomach needs food. And so I need information. I'm going to need to learn how to feel safe, even though I'm confused, even though I cannot readily access information like I used to. I also need to feel safe, even though I'm going to have more and more trouble completing tasks, and I'm going to need your help with everything. Eventually, I will be unable to do any tasks at all for myself. So these are incredible security needs. But the good news is we're, we keep our intuitive thinking skills. We keep our experiential learning abilities. So we're always learning whether we're safe. So we, as companions of somebody who's experiencing dementia, we can teach a person that they can be safe confused. They can be safe not knowing what's going on. And they can be safe even though they need help with everything. And boy, once you've done that, then the outside petals of the dawn flower, that's self-actualization. So can I ask you, um, just for the people listening, because I know yeah, yeah um, we're coming towards the end here, if, can you tell them, and I think you're going to come back on again, by the way, um, I would love if, if you agree, 
because I think this oh, yeah, is such yes. a huge need in our society. Um, just describe two techniques you could use instantly to help someone in this situation right now to make someone feel safe. And this, because I believe this doesn't just go to dementia, I think it goes across all of us, um, but dementia accelerates it. So do you want to give two yeah. techniques you found to be really, really effective? So um, I call it the morphine button effect, but here's the deal with security and confusion. If I'm losing rational thinking skills, memory skills, I will be forever more confused until the day I die. Okay, if I must live in confusion, I need to learn that it's okay to not know what's going on. Life to this point, all, life teaches all of us that you have to know what's going on to be safe. So what I do then for my companion, for my friends who are experiencing dementia, every time they ask me a question, I answer. And and if somebody says, you know, we get in the car and Mary says, where are we going? I say, oh, I thought we'd go for a drive and see if we could find really good hot chocolate. How's that sound? Oh, that sounds great. Okay. But he's got memory loss. So count three seconds of the psychological now. Three seconds later, she says, Judy, where are we going? And I say, oh, I thought we'd go for a drive. Maybe go get some hot chocolate. How does that sound? I might change my answers if my answers aren't meeting her need. Now, if she needs information, if her brain just can't store and access the information she needs, where are we going? What's happening? I just give it to her forever. No problem. Does not bother me. Why doesn't it bother me? Because I love her. And I understand she can't retain information. So why should I be upset about repeating? Repeating is part of our society treasuring memory skills above humans themselves. So, but but I, I answer the question every time. That will meet her brain's need for information. She will gradually learn and that she doesn't need to ask because the answer is always available. So here's what happens. Judy, where are we going? Oh, I thought we'd go for a drive. Oh, okay. Judy, where are we going? Oh, I thought we'd go for a drive. Oh, okay. And then she says, Judy, where are we going? Oh, it doesn't matter. I know you know. And then we always have fun. When my client says that, I know she learned it's safe to not know what's going on. Because when I'm with her, we always have fun and she knows. And she'll tell me. She will answer and give me information whenever. I, I think the interesting piece in that is the tone of your voice. Yes, that you weren't frustrated, angry, because because they're hypersensitive, because they've lost that, they've got no filter. Right, means that they can right. take because of the way the amygdala processes stressful, fearful faces and any kind of thing like that yeah. at 10x the rate of good things. Yes, that's yes. why if yeah. you that's why what you're doing there specifically yeah. is, is going to make That's, that part of the brain feel calmer. Right. It's critical. No emotional penalties. Do not communicate exasperation, but, you know, or irritation or frustration. Yeah. We call those bad emotions, but no, they're just emotions. Yeah. Don't communicate that, but also do not communicate concern, worry, or fear. When she asks the same question or she says, who is that person? And it's actually her daughter. Do not communicate concern or worry or fear because once again, you're right. And, and I think intuitive, the nonverbal communication skills, we read that with our intuitive thinking skills. Yeah, because the other thing and, that's happening there too is that um, as soon as they read, and especially when you say I already asked, you already asked that question. Uh, and because, yeah. I mean, all of us are humans, you know. <laughs> right. Yeah. We want our parents yeah. and loved ones to be the same as they always were. But always this were. practicing skill you're learning is more about us, isn't it, than them. But yes. these, these are learnt skills for us to have to change the way we think about how what they're saying in response to. So it's like a two-way street and they can it's pick the up. If, yeah, yeah, it is. It's really, yeah. it's really making humans become more human. Um, yeah, because we have to work on ourselves as well, which is not easy to do. That, I get that comment a lot, you know, and and I always, I never let a family go through and learn the Dawn method any quicker than eight weeks. Um, we did a study at the University of Alabama, and they wanted to go faster, and I said, no, you can't do it. It's too much, and this, it's eight weeks, and we do one, we look at one emotional need each week, and you've got to 
an entire week to just let that sink in. (laughs) Yeah. And my training programs, um, I get a lot of flack from medical professionals because the caregiver certification program I designed with videos and quizzes to use experiential learning and to make using memory skills really difficult. And um, I'm forcing people at some places in some of my questions to to use rational thinking to deduce the answers that I did not give in the video. And so you're, you know, I'll, I'll get people saying, you didn't cover that information in video 1.4, you can't ask that question on the quiz. And so we have all of these emails built in explaining to people, you're taking, you're looking at the correct answers, you're going back, you're doing it over and over again, you're doing it over and over again, because I want you to feel like you lost cognitive skills. And I want you to not be able to use memory skills so that it feels like somebody who's losing these skills themselves. I want to first build empathy. Exactly. Well, that takes a lot of time sometimes. It takes time. Yeah, it (laughs) took me about three years to design um, experiential learning type quizzes. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for everything you're doing and what a great purpose you have in your life. I'm sure it's what gets you out of bed every day without any problem at all. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, um, you know, you'd ask me, let's close with this one thing. You asked me what I would, um, one question you said, what advice would you give to a younger person? Because I'm I'm 63, I'm going on 64 now. So I get to give advice to younger people. But don't do what I did. It took me until I was 50 before I started following my heart. And here's the deal. Whatever it is, there should not be a timeline. Don't race off to college and complete a degree just because you think you need to do it by the age of 22. Forget it. Do what the European kids do. Go travel. Have friends. Follow your heart. And the most important thing in life, I think, is we should follow our hearts because the task your heart leads you to do with joy that makes your heart sing, that task only you can do. Nobody else can do it. You're the one who's perfectly equipped for it. And if you don't do it, if you do something you should do or that society um, gives more value to than the task your heart leads you on, Nobody will do your task. So I, that would be you know, what, what I wish I could tell young people. Oh, I'm going Just to echo that. Follow your heart. And you can tell when you're not doing it. You get really stressed, yeah. not sleep at night. Um, when you're right. totally off what you're meant to be doing, there's, there's lots of physiological signs, but we're very good at hiding those, that's for sure. <laughs> and then we start ignoring our brain health too. We start Absolutely. Doing things that are not healthy for our brains. So. Yeah, which leads to dementia, by the way. <laughs> it does, yeah. Uh, actually, I think everywhere they send American corporate food, they export dementia along with it. So that's oh, another yes. topic. That's a big topic, a huge topic. Yeah. In fact, uh, looking at the hospital food, Oh, your poor mom. <laughs> I would never well, she's survive. lucky she's got my dad bringing her food. But oh, yes. good. Yeah. It's lovely yeah. to talk to you. And I so we're so Thanks grateful too. for your time. And I look forward to having Thank another you. conversation. And maybe we'll get down into the nuts and bolts because I think people would be really interested in hearing a little bit more about how they can access some of your training. And because uh, sure. there's yeah. a lot of people going through this right now. So, oh, there is. Yeah, dementia was the original epidemic yeah. before before COVID hit. Yeah, well, so. thank you so much for doing what you're doing too. That's really helpful for so many people. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm just lovely to meet you. Me Good too. To thank you so much, Judy, and the Dawn Method. <laughs>